Gretchen, I feel like we know each other by rumor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I know all about uh, your work, and, uh, and, and but never, our paths have never directly crossed, or maybe they have, and I'm, I'm forgetting. That would be rude, but I, I don't think we've ever been in the room, you know, the same room where it happened. And uh, but it's awfully nice to have an excuse to be talking today. No, it's great. Yes, no, I know. It seems like we would have banged into each other someplace, but I don't think that we ever have. But but here we are now. And um, if you're okay, let's just jump in. Is that all right? Let's do it. That's great. Okay, I, I have a question for you right right off the bat, which is um, actually just tell me about your law school journey because I don't know if you know this, but I went to law school myself before. I got wise and quit. Mm. But you... How far did you go? Well, one year. <laughs> okay. So no, nothing on what you did. Uh, you, you really became successful in what you were doing. And uh, obviously, this is part of the beginning of the story of where you are today. But can you just fill us in on that journey? Yeah, I mean, I went to law school the reason that a lot of people go to law school. I was like, I'm good at research and writing. Uh, I'm good at school. It's a great education. It'll keep my options open. I can always change my mind later. My father is a lawyer and a very happy lawyer. So I had an example in my life. So I thought, oh, you know, I, I didn't know what else to do with myself. That's like one of the hardest things to figure out is like, what do you want to do when you get out of college? So I decided, oh, I got to law school. I did very well in law school. I was editor in chief of the law journal. Um, I, you know, got a- Yes, at Yale. At Yale, Yale, at Yale You're law- not mentioning it, but that's, that's important. Yeah, Yale Law School. Top law school. Yeah. Went on to clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And when I was clerking for her, I had this epiphany. I am a person who is subject to epiphanies, but I was staring up at the Capitol Dome against the blue sky. And I thought, you know, I just was asking myself a rhetorical question. I was like, what am I interested in that every other person in the world is interested in? You know, what is the most interesting? And I thought, well, power, money, fame. And it was like those ideas, that set of ideas hit me like a thunderbolt. And I was like, power, money, fame. And I started just doing massive research and taking notes, which is something that I do. That's not that unusual for me. Like I do ever since I was a child, I will get really, really interested in something and kind of do a lot of research on it. And, um, but this really took over. Um, and I was staying late and I was doing it on the weekends and, um, like reading everything I get my hands on and writing. And finally it occurred to me, this is the kind of thing a person would do if they were going to write a book. And then I thought, well, maybe I could be the person to write that book. And I went out to the bookstore and got a book called something like how to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal. And I just followed the directions and that became my first book. So that's how I transitioned from law to writing. Done. I love that. And but come back to that moment where you're looking at the blue sky over the Capitol. Why were you asking the question, what's everybody in the world interested in that I'm interested in? You know, if I look back on all the books that I've written, my books are always about human nature. That is my interest in life, is human nature. Who are we? Why do we do what we do? How can we change if we want to change? And so I am constantly, I have like these rhetorical questions like running through my head at all times that I'm always sort of thinking about. And that's a question like, is what are people interested in? Like what captures people's attention? And for whatever, on that day, I was living in Washington, DC. That's probably part of it. <laughs> that power money fame. <laughs> and uh, I remember I, I, I was at a book party with like a very famous writer and I was telling him about the book and he goes, Power, money, fame. So you need to pick three, red, white, and blue. Things always come in threes. And I was like, power, money, fame. 
which one would you leave out? <laughs> I'm like, it's not three for artful reasons. It's three because of the world, the, of human nature. Yeah. So I think it was because I was just thinking, I'm constantly sort of asking myself these questions. Like, you know, why can't people, I understand why people can't get themselves to do things they don't like to do. Why is it that people can't get themselves to do things they love to do? I mean, I thought about that for years, you know, so I think I was just always running through my head, these kind of questions. But that strikes me as curious because I don't know that everybody walks around with that kind of question going on. That to me seems like the question a teacher would ask someone who, even if you didn't know it at that time, wanted to share a message with the world, wanted to be part of the big conversation uh, in, in a different way. I, I feel like there's something there about the very fact that you are even asking these rhetorical questions, that this is running around in your mind. Thoughts? Well, in a way, I wonder if the, if the person I'm trying to teach is myself, because I feel like often the reason that I write something is to figure out what I think. Or to understand, like, it forces me to, like, think something through or, like, allows me to get all the information that I need, uh, you know, put together. Um, so I feel like often the, the, the student is me and the teacher is me, you know, research is me, search. And, um, yeah, so maybe I'm playing both roles. I ask the question and then I have to be the one to answer the question. The only, and the only way I can answer the question is to somehow write through it, which has definitely always been the case for me. What are your learnings about the question you just posed a moment ago about why people can't get them to do themselves to do things they want to do? What are your thoughts on this? Well, that's my four tendencies framework. And I don't know that we have time. If you want to get into my whole personality framework, um, which divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Okay. Um, You've got to slow that down though. Okay. So I have a four tendencies personality framework that divides humanity into four categories um, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And there's a, if there's if you want to take a quiz, there's like a free, quick, free quiz on my site at quiz.gretchenrubin.com. And like 3 million people have taken this quiz. Um, and what it looks at is something that sounds really boring, but turns out to be really juicy, which is how do you respond to expectations? So we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations and inner expectations. So outer expectations is like a work deadline. Inner expectations is like, I want to get back into meditation. And depending on how you respond to outer and inner, that's what makes you an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. Now, the biggest category of person is obliger. For both men and women, that's the biggest one. And obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And so a lot of times when someone says, why can't I get myself to do something that I want to do, that I love to do, I, often it's because the person is an obliger and they have no trouble doing the request from the friend. They have no trouble meeting the deadline from the boss. They have no trouble showing up at carpool at the right time. But when they're trying to make time to meditate, when they're trying to make time to have piano lessons, when they're trying to make time to go for a walk, they struggle because they don't have, they don't have outer accountability. They need outer expectations in order to meet inner expectations. And then once you know that, then you're just like, oh, if you're an obliger, all you need is outer accountability to do. If you want to read more, join a book group. It's easy once you know that that's kind of the missing piece. But a lot of times people, in my view, misdiagnose that missing piece. So they they try different things and that often don't work. Because what, in my view, what they need is outer accountability to meet an inner expectation. If an obliger wanted to launch 
uh, a new career yes. or a new chapter in their career, how would they go about that? That's a really good question because a lot of obligers are really puzzled because they're like, well, when I was working my office job, I was incredibly productive. And now that I'm going off on my own, where is all that conscientiousness? Like, well, why am I stalling out? And so my thing is create outer accountability. So often an obliger needs to create a client or a customer or a student before they even have a product. It's like, get people waiting for it. Have people depending on you. You're a wedding photographer, book a wedding. Now you got to go buy a camera because somebody's expecting you to show up at their wedding and take photographs of them. You know, bring in that outer accountability or work with a coach. I think a lot of times that's why people work with executive coaches because coaches ho often hold you accountable. You know, think of your role, your duty to be a role model to other people. I'm telling my children that I'm going to do this and I need to show them what it looks like to keep promises to yourself and to move forward. I want to be a role model. Um, sometimes people announce things on Facebook. I'm doing this so that they have the sense that people are checking on them. There's a million ways to create outer accountability once you know that's what you need. It is the biggest group. So the world has created many forms of outer accountability. There's lots of apps you can sign up for. There's lots of groups you can sign up for because so many people really do find it so much easier. But the thing is, it's like they need it for things they enjoy too. And that's the thing that I think surprises them. I love to read. Why can't I find time to read? Well, you need to find outer accountability for that. Mm -hmm. oh, I love this insight. What percentage of people are in that category? That is about 40%. And then the other three, give us the summary of the other three. So when you think about, well, what are the percentages in the world? About 41% of people are obligers. So that's a very big group. And again, it's the biggest group for both men and women. 24% are questioners. Then 19% are upholders. That's my category. And then 17% are rebel, which is the smallest group, but it's a very conspicuous group. And it, and all the questioners are like, but it doesn't add up to 100. And that's right, because often when you do um, <laughs> surveys like this, it doesn't exactly add up to 100. I know that, and that's okay. But so you see that you either are an, an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. And so it's an issue that many people will... Uh, this is a, a, a challenge that many people need to face. Tell me, uh, give me the synopsis of questioners. So questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. They have to know why. So if something meets their inner expectation, they will do it no problem. If it fails their inner expectation, they will resist. So you know, <laughs> their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Mm. So these are the people that are told you ask too many questions or, you know, won't do something if they don't think it makes sense. I'm married to a questioner, so I know this tendency very well. And then you said you were which category? I'm upholder. Um, upholder. So What's an upholder? An upholder readily meets outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important or more important. Um, so their motto is discipline is my freedom. Hmm. And rebels. So rebels resist all expectations outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. And they can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. Uh, but if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And typically they don't like to tell themselves what to do. Like they don't sign up for a 10 a.m., woodworking class on Saturday morning because they think, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday morning. And just the idea that people are <laughs> expecting me to show up at a certain time is going to bug me. Um, so their mm. motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. What what does a rebel do to become, I mean, how, how does a rebel thrive? 
Rebels can be enormously successful. Rebels, it's a matter of identity. It's who they are. They want the authenticity is so important to them. And so if they think I'm an athlete, I'm a poet, I'm a musician, I'm a responsible parent, I'm a considerate boss, I'm a visionary, I'm a leader, then then their actions will follow because they'll do anything that they want to do. So for them, it's very important to be very tied to why am I choosing to do this? And to think about the consequences of their action or inaction. Like if I want this, then I ha- I'm going to do that because I want what the end result will be. They're not going to do it because they're supposed to or because you told them to or because they have to or because it's the rule. But they'll do it because they want to do it um, for their own reasons and in their own way and in their own time. So they can be enormously successful and they can be very, very, they're often very values driven, but they're doing it because they want to. When people come to ask you about writing and they say, oh, I want to write a book. What is your most important advice to them? My most important advice, and it sounds preposterous, but I truly believe it is the most important thing, no matter what you're trying to write. Know what you want to say. Have something to say. Because often people, it's very easy, surprisingly, not really to have much to say or not to know what you want to say. And I will be working on things myself where I'm like, yeah, I don't really, I, you know, what am I really trying to say here? I'm kind of just writing words. And once you have an idea that you want to communicate, it's like the word, and then it, the writing, the quality of the writing actually matters less because you're so excited about the idea and the desire to communicate. And then comes the desire to hone it and to make it very powerful and to really work, work on the, the words. Is there something you want to say now in a future book that's really clear to you, even if it's not the next book you're going to write? Do you have such an idea? Yes. I want to write a book, uh, which will be called something like Symbols Beyond Words, which is about when things happen or, or symbols are invoked that seem to have just like crazy power. And I have some examples of this where this has happened in my own life. You come across them often in literature and art. And I just collect them because I'm just like, to me, they're so fascinating, but I really, I don't know enough about what I would say. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is like crazy situation, a crazy example of human nature at work. Um, so I feel like that's something I have to work up to. You know, I have to grow in knowledge and experience and wisdom. And then someday I will be like, now I am ready to write the book, Symbols Beyond Word. What's an example? If you read Carl Jung's um, dream, uh, what is it? Memories, Dreams, Reflections. It's like the whole thing is a collection of symbols beyond words. Um, I've read that book like seven times. Um, What's an example of a symbol beyond a word for you? Well, like, okay, well, so I always have to translate them into words, of course, because that's my nature. But like, I wrote a book, I wrote a paper in law school, and then ended up actually writing a book in collaboration with an artist, because I was so preoccupied with examples of when owners would choose to destroy their own possessions. There are many, many powerful, striking examples where people, I I first got my insight into this because I went to a museum that had a whole uh, exhibit on about potlatch, which is um, a tradition uh, where you can't, you, it's complicated. It's about gift giving. And then in kind of its later stages, it became about like destroying property. And and I was just like, what, what is going on? And this is, of course, very contrary to the way lawyers think, because they're thinking about possessions and rights. But one of the rights of possessions is the right to destroy. But you don't have an absolute right to destroy. There's a lot of laws about what you can destroy and what you can't destroy. I just became incredibly preoccupied with this. Um, And all these examples of like, for instance, there was a uh, like a, a Japanese tycoon 
who kind of announced that he was going to be, I can't, he was going to be buried with his Matisse or he was going to be buried with his Monet or something like this, some masterpiece. And the world went crazy. Like, you can't do that. Well, he could keep it in a basement and never let anybody see it for, for a hundred years, but why can't he be buried with it? It's like, to me, that's fascinating. Why does this subject matter to you so much? What is it underneath it that attracts you so strongly to, to say, I, I, I've got to understand this. I've got to study this over the coming years to put words to it. I think it's because I'm just so fascinated by human nature. And so people do these things and I'm like, how do you explain this? Like to me, I'm like, I just want to like, just to think through what people do. I mean, what they do, the patterns in what people do, I find it endlessly fascinating. And so I think that these symbols beyond words are kind of, it's, it's kind of when it resonates in a way that is so deep and so powerful that it's almost, it's like hard to even put words to it. When you use the word human nature, I sense that that means a lot to you mm -hmm. and it means quite specific things to you because human nature is quite a, a really broad term, mm -hmm. covers almost anything. But I think mm -hmm. for you, it means something more precise, a, a particular part of human nature, the, the peccadilloes, the surprises, the oddities the nuances that why would anybody do that? But you know, subject. that's true, but often it's the obvious and it's the familiar that is the hardest to see. It's like this pattern of, of like I got my insight into the tendencies because a friend of mine said something that so many people ha had, have said things like this to me. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. She said, you know, I know I'd be happier if I exercise. And the weird thing is, you know, in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? And mm. I thought, I've heard that a hundred times. Mm. So many people have said that. Why? It's so familiar that it almost fades out of view. But how do you explain that? Um, so I agree. I'm very attracted to the odd, but it's almost harder to try to grasp the familiar and the obvious. But once it once it gets in you, it's like a splinter in your skin. Mm -hmm. You've yeah. got to go after it. Yes. You've got to learn about it. You yes. you have to get that out. And the way you exercise it is by doing the work and writing it. And now perhaps then you can let go. Yes, exactly. It, you, know, you said exercise, and that's true. It's like that's how I get it out. Um, yes. Once I wrote a book about why people destroyed their own possessions and I didn't have to be obsessed with it anymore. Um, though I'm still very interested in it. I, I'm like not tracking it as closely as I was uh, back then. Yes. It, it kind of frees my mind then to think about other things. Mm. Yeah. One of my favorite ideas about writing is that writers write because they cannot not write. Yes, that's very and true. I think there is a compulsive element to it for many people. That's almost uncomfortable. Sometimes I, I, my own experience is it is, is enormously uncomfortable and that writing is a cleansing process and uh, a back to normality. Okay, I'm good for today. I've managed to get mm -hmm. that out. What is writing like for you? Do you do it every day? Are you do you do it in spurts? What's your writing process? Um, I have. I have a lot of different kinds of writing that I do probably every day. So like if I'm working on a book, I'm a very, I'm a real morning person. So I always try to do my more, most taxing work and original writing I would consider to be my most taxing work. 
Um, first thing in the day. So that's what I'll do kind of for as long as I can maintain that level. And then I, I also, I have a podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. So I have to work on that. Sometimes I write blog posts as retro as that sounds. I still do post to my, my, my blog. I have, I have my big book that I'm working on right now, which is about the five senses and the body. But then I also have side projects. Like I'm writing this book of aphorisms, which is like the most fun ever. It's like my, it's like my playbook. Mm. Um, and so I'll be working on that too. Like, and so a lot of, and when I read, I take a lot of notes. And so I will also be typing in my notes and incorporating notes into whatever document where they would make sense or into or, or or if they make sense into an actual draft book i would be working those in and you know putting in a footnote or whatever then i also have because i love quotations and i have since i was i've collected quotations since i was a mm. child i i i do a new i do a daily newsletter of, with, of called the moment of happiness where it's like a wonderful quotation every day and so i also am always collecting those so i might find a wonderful quotation that isn't related to a subject that i'm tracking as a to write about, but then I'm like, oh, that's such a beautiful line that would make a great moment of happiness. So then I have to write that down, and so, and then I have quotations that I keep that aren't appropriate for that, but are just great writing for me. And then I have all these documents where I'm just tracking kind of giant subjects. So I spend a lot of time actually like writing something that would be polished for an audience, but then I also do a lot of writing where it's just kind of like um, maintenance. Uh, work on subjects where I'm I'm kind of uh, accumulating information, knowledge, examples. Um, a lot of what I write, nobody ever sees and will never see. And I might even forget that I did it. I'm always coming across like <laughs> 40,000 word documents that I kind of forgot about. So in the course of one day, I do a lot of different kinds of writing. How do you feel when you come across 40,000 words? You know that you forgot about. What's funny is that usually I've kind of forgotten about that, but it's like it's been picked up some other way. Uh, it's like I think that I for, I think I've let something go, but it's actually just morphed. So a lot of times, and I don't know if you've ever had this bizarre experience where like you will write something a year ago and then you will write something today, thinking that it's the first time you've articulated an idea, and you will see that you wrote it almost verbatim like months before. It's just the way the mind, a person's mind frames something. So often I will see, oh, I wrote this and I kind of forgot about it, but I see that I'm still working through the same ideas in this other place or this other document. So I do try to go back from time to time and see, like, has, is there something I kind of have forgotten I did? Because maybe I need that now. I, I find it to a shocking degree. I've just started rereading journals from 25 years ago and... I haven't really reread them. I, I, I've kept journals pretty faithfully for all these years, but not gone back and reread them. And it's, it seems like so odd that I haven't done that. Why am I storing all these <laughs> books and books yeah. up? But as you go back and you suddenly go, my goodness, when I was 20, I was already thinking about the thing I was thinking yes. about yesterday. And it's isn't it a bit bizarre. A friend of mine who did, the, who did the same thing you did, she said, I realize I keep having the same insights over and over, like for the first time, it, you know, shocking. yes, the mind circles a lot. Yeah, no, it is. That's a really, wow, what an interesting undertaking. It must be kind of mentally exhausting though. Well, it's like, a, it's like we're living memento. We just keep waking up as if we haven't made progress. But I think it's also telling to start seeing what are the repeated thoughts and feelings of our life, because clearly 
there's some sort of messenger involved here, something coming yeah. through us yes. that needs to be manifest. Yeah. Listen to this. I just heard David Bednar, a leader in a church I go to, uh, has this experience. He's not a musician, but he keeps on yes. feeling music inside of him. And he goes and he talks to one of his you know, talented, exceptional musical friends. And he says, I need you to help me to get this music out of me. <laughs> and, and they did. So it's been published now and it's an absolutely beautiful piece. And I just thought in that story, there was a lot of, of volumes in that little moment uh, for all of us, that we all have music inside of us of some kind that needs to come out uh, and and in in perhaps in our case it, it's it's writing and ideas that that have been trying to make themselves manifest, but we just keep forgetting that they've been there. Something there. Thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I see this among writers. Is it's I, I always think of it as a blocking project, and this is where people have the need to create something, even though it kind of doesn't make sense for them to do it. Like a friend of mine is a like very, very esteemed journalist and kind of, you know, nonfiction writer. And she was writing a play. And I said, that's interesting that you're deciding to write a play. Why do you want to do that? And she said, I don't even really want to do it, but I feel like I have, like, I can't do anything else until I get this play out of me. Kind of like your friend, I need to get it out of me. It's like blocking my path forward. And I've had, situations like that myself and i've talked to a surprising number of people where it's like this has to be go out into the world even though i don't really know what i'm doing and i i don't even really feel like i want to but i sort of have to um and so that's interesting though that he recruited somebody to help him yes it's a great example of like you don't always need the skills you think you need i mean it's like i remember finding out that dolly parton doesn't read music paul mccartney doesn't read music you think oh you have to be able to read music no, you don't. No, you don't. You figure a workaround if you want to, you know, it's like um, you can publish music if all you need is the idea and you find people who can help you get where you need to go. So that's fascinating. Arguably, you are best known for the theme of happiness, given the name of the podcast, given Happiness Project, Happier at Home and so on. W what are the vital few things you've learned about how to be happier since writing your books about happiness? Well, one thing I, I, I knew going in, but just spending so much time thinking about it and reading the research and, and just uh, reflecting on it is really in the end, it's relationships. I mean, it, that is what we need to be happy. When you look at the people who are happier, they have happier, they have more relationships. They have deeper relationships. Um, if you're not, if you're not happy in your relationships, um, it's, you can't be happy. And so I, now I always think like, if I'm trying to decide something, I'm like, is this going to deepen a relationship or broaden a relationship? Because if it is, it's probably going to make me happier. So that's definitely something that I sort of knew going in, but now I, I became so much more of a zealot about it because I really thought through how important it was. And I would say the other thing, and this was something I didn't really understand nearly as well, is the importance of self-knowledge. Like each of us has to do his or her own, we, we have to do our own happiness project. We have to figure out our own temperament, our own ideals, our own values. What's essential to us? What's essential to me is not essential to you. And everybody has to figure out what's essential. 
um, and build their life around that. And, and nobody can do that for you. Nobody can, nobody can hand you a template. Um, it, it's kind of the great challenge of our lives. Um, and so this, this, the importance of self-knowledge um, and, and, and the challenge of self-knowledge, it's hard to decide what's essential. You're like, I got a thousand things that are essential. It's like, well, they can't all be essential. <laughs> um, you know, it's work to figure these things out about ourselves. What's something that's essential for you that you're underinvesting in right now? I think my friendships, because, you know, it's it. everybody's uh, social lives are completely disrupted. And I and I do I do have lots of Zooms. I do uh, go I go and walk and talks with friends where like we'll talk on the phone while we walk wh- wherever we are, um, which is great because then I can be with somebody anywhere in the world. Um, it doesn't have to be somebody, you know, in New York City. Um, and I, I talk to my family all the time, but I do feel like I don't have the usual structures in place that like get me out and get me, get me meeting new people and get me in contact with people that maybe I wouldn't necessarily zoom with. And I, so I've been thinking about how, how do I make sure that I really do stay connected with people that are close to me? And how do I kind of push the envelope to, to include people who are less close to me? Or maybe close to me, but I'm just not in that constant contact. They're maybe not up, like top of mind. I need to go to like the middle of mind. It, it sounds like you feel a little more. I, I think lots of people feel this now. A little more isolated, a little even lonelier than under usual circumstances. The thing is, I really, I'm a homebody. I'm like, get along really well with my family. So I don't, I, I wish, I, I almost wish I felt lonelier because I think maybe, but, but actually loneliness research shows loneliness doesn't necessarily make people want to reach out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Paradoxically, that often that makes, makes them feel kind of defensive and judgmental. Um, yeah, I'm kind of happy just like staying home and like having more time to read. But I know in the end, I'll be happier if I connect with other people. So um, I almost have to intellectually trust. Um, it's not it's not so much my emotional desire to do it, but my knowledge that it will pay off. There's there's a need that isn't acute at first and is normally being met by the normal flow of life, being yes. out, being at an event, yes. speaking at an event. Yep. All of that makes that need gets met, but now it doesn't yeah. get met naturally. So now you need a sort of new system, a new tweak, yes. a new thing to do. Yes. Um, what are you considering doing to, to meet this need in a sort of systematic way? Well, systematic is exactly the word I was thinking of, because for me, everything needs to be done systematically. I'm like very linear. And so I was thinking, you know, I do have a couple walk and talks or Zooms every week, but maybe I need to like say once a week, like Sunday, I'm going to think of somebody that I haven't connected with yet since March <laughs> and email them and say, do you want to do X? Do you want to do Y? Um, and so that I do have more people kind of in my active, uh, uh, like that I'm in touch with in an active way. Cause for a while I think it was all like, Oh, this is, we're just kind of all on pause. And and that's like, man, eh, this is not just pause. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's time to deal with it. Um, and so, yeah, so I think maybe just, and not, not something crazy, but just like once a week, like connect with somebody, whether that's a phone call or a zoom or a walk and talk or, you know, whatever it would be. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, Gretchen. I am so glad that we've had an excuse to do it. And, uh, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. I look forward to the day when we will meet in person at last. Our li- our paths will cross in real life. It will be delightful. Amen to that. Thank you, Gretchen. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. And if you like this conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review there, especially write a comment so that other people can find us and we can continue to grow the momentum of this essentialist tribe. It's been amazing to see what's happened already. This show is of, by, and for that essentialist community. And so please share with me through the website at either gregmcewan.com or essentialism.com your questions, your stories, your experiences with this podcast, with the book Essentialism, with your experiences. We can continue to expand and make a difference in the world. Uh, Remember, if you don't remember anything else from today, to ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else.